Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of Scholarly, brought to you by the journal ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society's Section of Medical Education. My name is Avi Cooper, and I am the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Assistant Program Director at The Ohio State University and a member of the podcasting team here at Scholarly. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Jacqueline O'Toole and Dr. Sandra Zay. Uh, who are both lead authors on the article titled Balancing Demands, Determinants of Burnout, reported by fellows in pulmonary and critical care medicine, which was published in ATS Scholar in January 2021. Uh, It's great to have you both on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you you for having us. Uh, And before we get started, do you mind introducing yourselves and telling us kind of what you do? And and also, is it okay if 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 I use your first names for the podcast today? Sure. Yeah, that would be great. So I'm Jackie O'Toole. I'm a fourth year fellow at Johns Hopkins and I'm doing the bulk of my clinical year this year. Um, I have interest in improving communication, both between patients and providers, but also interdisciplinary provider team groups. And I've done some research on medical education as well. And my name is Sandy Zay. I'm a fourth year fellow at Hopkins, primarily on a research year this year, um, working on um, my F32 related research related to indoor air quality in Baltimore City Schools. Um, and similar to Jackie, I also have a strong interest in medical education. Terrific. And it's, it's really great to have you both on. And um, it's, it's also really nice to feature some amazing work that you've done and doing it as trainees and as fellows and, and, and moving a field forward like this and tackling an important topic. So it's really, it's great to have you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And do you mind uh, just telling the listeners or me because I'm interested something that maybe people don't don't know about you, Jackie, if you want to start? Sure. So I think, I mean, I've always been a college football fan growing up, but in the last maybe five years, my husband and I have become big Formula One fans, which you don't see very much, I think, in the U.S., Um, we're big uh, Max Verstappen fans and have fun watching the... uh, the races. The only problem is that races are at like three in the morning or all all hours, so it's it's a little bit challenging. So we watch we watch them delayed, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and um, I love to run um, in my spare time. It's like sort of how I keep in shape. My stress relief and everything have done um, like various distances in the past, but for the most part, I'm running after my crazy two year old these days. Um, so she really keeps me on my toes. So I see kind of speed being the theme for both of you. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. One self-propelled, one not. (laughs) Great. Well, you know, you guys took on a really important topic here, burnout amongst pulmonary and critical care trainees. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of different ways that we could kind of, that we could tackle this today. But I wanted to start talking about the fact that, you know, most educators are probably, you know, are familiar with burnout 
you know, maybe we, we know it when we see it in our in trainees, in our colleagues, or even feel it in ourselves. But do you mind just defining burnout? So we kind of have a, you know, a comprehensive definition of what we're going to be talking about today. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think, like you said, burnout is one of those things that we talk a lot about, but can be quite vague. The way that I think about burnout is I, I really like a definition that uh, Christina Maslick has uh, done a lot of work and we used her burnout index in the quantitative arm of this study um, or, you know, Michelle Sharp, our, um, our senior author on the paper. Um, so burnout to me, a type of just exhaustion that you're prone to depersonalization. Uh, you see cynicism and just detaching from the job. It can come with a lack of accomplishment, uh, feeling like you're ineffective. But I think the true driver is just overall exhaustion and kind of detachment, I think, are the drivers in my mind when I think of it. And and, and why is burnout important to study? And I guess specifically in the population that you focused on, pulmonary critical care fellows, like why why is this something that, that our field needs to focus on? Absolutely. So um, healthcare provider burnout has become a topic of inter increasing interest, I would say, over the last like five to 10 years. Um, and it's been shown to impact both our patients um, and the healthcare of providers themselves. So from a patient perspective, um, physician burnout has been linked to worse patient safety outcomes, like worse quality of care received, decreased patient satisfaction. And then from a provider perspective, physician burnout has been associated with things like uh, like awful things like depression, alcohol abuse, broken relationships, things like that. Um, and so we know it's been described in the literature that um, burnout is common among critical care physicians. Um, but uh, this had been like a less well-studied area among pulmonary critical care medicine fellows. And so that was the group that we were specifically interested in. Um, and so we thought that uh, PCCM fellows might be a particular risk of burnout given they've increased time spent um, in the ICU setting compared to non-critical care trainees. Um, and so that leads to both, you know, physical exhaustion, but also a lot of emotional exhaustion based on the issues that you're dealing with in the ICU. So that's why we were interested in studying this topic. Also being Palm Critical Care Fellows, uh, this is very relevant, relevant to us as well. And, and obviously burnout during the, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a major issue across, you know, the healthcare system, I would think. Uh, but in terms of, but this was, the, the, this data was all collected pre, pre-COVID-19, is that correct? Yes. Yes. This is pre-COVID. Okay. So, and do you mind walking us through kind of what your group's research questions were and, you know, how you kind of, you know, arrived at that, at that agenda to, to, to take on? Sure. And um, I mentioned before, but Michelle Sharp did, you know, the lion's share of creating this instrument that we'll, we'll, I think we'll probably get into the survey that we did. And you know, um, Sandy and I also share a mentor, Michelle Eakin, that were really instrumental in, in this work. But the goals in general of the project um, was to really look at factors relating to training and practice that posed threats to, um, to burnout or sometimes well-being is technically different, but sometimes colloquially you'll hear people use them interchangeably. Um, so to really look at things that posed a threat and then also to get a sense from fellows, what suggestions or what things that were important to them that they were able to volunteer on how training programs can improve, uh, improve upon in this and to reduce burnout. So 
the questions that we actually asked to answer these um, were having individuals um, just write out what kind of factors their programs have um, of those what seemed to affect their burnout and risk put their wellness at risk the most and then really what are things that individuals felt a training program could do to support them because we realized that there's so many different wellness and burnout interventions and a new you know yoga day or bagel day at, at each hospital or, you know once a week that a lot of the stuff that we do we haven't really stopped to say well what do people think would be helpful and to help make them to improve upon their burnout so that's that's what we're aiming to get at and just to make sure that I, I to make sure that I understand you know exactly how you approach this so you wanted to first define and measure the levels of burnout and also kind of depressive symptoms amongst pulmonary critical care medicine trainees looking at then looking at also contributors to the to burnout whether that be personal or interpersonal or structural contributors and factors and then also thinking about potential solutions and ways to, to mitigate burnout is that is that kind of a fair assessment of what you yes. did mm-hmm. okay exactly okay and um i think you know a challenge in for any medical researcher doing survey-based research is reaching the people that they want to survey and uh, having a high enough response rate to make sure that the results are valid. So how did you how did you administer the survey? How did you get it out to people, um, specifically fellows? And you know, was this a part of a larger survey or that, that goes out or how did you do that? Absolutely. So Jackie mentioned a little bit about this already, but um, our questions that we asked, the specific three topics that Jackie mentioned, were part of a larger cross-sectional um, electronic survey of fellows enrolled in um, pulmonary, PCCM, and critical care medicine training programs throughout the U.S. Um, and so the um, uh, the APCCMPD was like a, a key partner in conducting this work, um, and that was how we were able to send um, this survey out to all of the fellows in training in these different kinds of programs. Um, and so that larger quantitative survey that we were referring to um, aimed to assess burnout and depressive symptoms. So um, I think we sent it to just over 900, I think it was 976 fellows. Um, and we had um, just over 500 respond um, who completed it. Um, and so the, um, a lot of the um, a lot of the sort of more quantitatively oriented outcomes were um, published in an article in Chest back in the fall. Michelle Sharp is the first author. Michelle Eakins, a senior author um, on that paper. And then within that larger survey, we asked these three free response questions where we specifically asked for fellows to like write in their thoughts. Um, and those were what we analyzed within, within this paper um, that we're talking about today. Okay, so you did a qualitative analysis on the free text responses that you got as part of that larger survey? Correct, yep. Yep, and so how we did that was we used the participant responses really to guide us to um, inductively create a code book and coded all the free response questions for common themes and you know grouped like with the like to really let the responses of the fellows guide us in what the important parts to, to hit here were. And then um, using that thematic analysis is how we, we came up with the, the results to present. That's great. And you know, you found what I, I thought was one, I mean, there's pretty high levels of burnout and depressive symptoms among fellows that I was really struck by. 
And how, how does that compare to trainees and other specialties? Is this unique to the demands of our specialty, especially in the critical care environment? And I guess lastly, Wake, were you surprised? Absolutely. So the um, the results of the larger quantitative survey that were published in that chess manuscript that I mentioned showed that 51% of fellows had either burnout or depressive symptoms. 41% had positive results for depressive symptoms. 32% had positive results for burnout. Um, and 23% had positive results for both. And that seems really high, right? When I, when I hear those numbers. Um, but unfortunately, that's really not that much different um, than well, when you look at uh, sort of prior data that's been collected specifically among um, residents and fellows, so sort of like house staff in training, um, the rates are similarly high. Sometimes some of the studies have even, even higher rates um, than what we showed. Um, so I think it was, in some ways, I think it was a little bit surprising because we, we thought that maybe rates in PCCM fellows would be even higher, you know, than sort of like what the, the national data was showing. Um, but it was really more in line with what other people other subspecialties, I should say, and how staff are experiencing. And so I think that kind of speaks to how this is really a systems issue that needs to be addressed rather than you know, a specific PCCM issue that's happening here. There's, there's like sort of larger factors at play. So not, not unique to our specialty. Exactly, but, yeah. <laughs> but we are as vulnerable as anyone, essentially. Correct. Okay, and so and what factors did you find were the biggest contributors? Like what are the biggest threats? So within our qualitative analysis, we um, found five themes that really emerged uh, looking at, and, and I think what's important to note is how many of these themes are not individual factors. We had one theme that was individual factors, but really burnout is not an individual or personal problem. Like Sandy said, it's a very much systems issue. So while there were some individual factors that came out, mostly team culture, uh, limited autonomy, lack of program resources, clinical burden, um, those were those were really what we saw. Um, I think clinical burden and the clinical workload specifically was the most commonly referenced contributor to burnout, um, and some of that varied as far as I, I think a lot of that comes to the general health system uh, strain. And I'm sure in COVID it was amplified of, you know, patient to provider ratios and how many things are you juggling at once really uh, seemed to contribute to people just feeling overwhelmed and ineffective. Um, the, the second most reference contributor uh, we saw had to do with leadership issues or cultures of teams. And then I think for, for me, one thing that struck me, I thought, was the limited autonomy. Um, if you think about what's unique to fellows or trainees when we're talking about physician burnout, it's that not only do you have the stressors of, you know, an intense clinical environment where people are very sick and you have a lot of demands, but you also have a limit on your autonomy where you may have a lack of control over the patient plan, but you also have a lack of control over your schedule, the ability to plan for you know a month in advance. I think that that aspect can be unique to trainees in general. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 finding resonated with me as well as a as an APD, you know, as an assistant program director, because of the combination of factors in the intense critical care environment where there's um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of death and, and, and more, there's morbidity and, um, very difficult conversations. And, um, 
and uh, uncertainty, you know, about uh, about how patients will do. And I think you combine that with a lack of autonomy that that can you know that can exist. Uh, that that resonated with me that that pulmonary critical care fellows would be per- particularly vulnerable in that in that environment. Absolutely. And you know, I, I think the other thing that struck me too was just how, like you said, how many factors there are that feed into this. And, you know, and, and I, I, obviously uh, the, we talked about some of the interpersonal, you know, interactions with individual faculty members and things like that. But I mean, there's some, there's some big issues here, institutional culture, leadership, administrative support for non-physician activities, even childcare support that, that was cited. Um, you know, and I, I guess that, 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 I don't, that's what struck me when I was looking at your, at your results. Um, and I think, you know, it ex- maybe partly explains why this is so hard to fix. Yeah. I think if you read some of the quotes, especially in the paper, given that it's like a qualitative analysis, like some of the quotes are so poignant, um, and really like stick with you. Some of the experiences that these fellows are having across all of these different realms, it's really, you know, it's just like, it's very, it's very touching in a way to hear some of these experiences, um, specifically some of the things around childcare support and, and financial needs and, and sort of the things that people are going through as they are in training. Yeah, I think to piggyback on that, that it is a unique population, right? So when I was in residency, and, and I think mostly individuals in earlier in their training are more likely to you know, maybe not be married yet, maybe not have a family yet. And that is an interesting aspect where these supports tend to be so much more important uh, to stave off burnout than at least for, for me personally, I remember in residency not fully appreciating how much support and how much help my my colleagues that you know you would never know it talking to them but how much their lives could have been made better by having more control over their schedule or you know the ability to have a child care on site how, how big of a deal that can be for people and I think as you know as you go in training we're you know adults in our mid-30s where a lot of people are starting to to have families it's just a different nuance to it and you know I I think also that's a call to, to call to action for, for program directors, I think, is we, you know, childcare support. And, you know, th- those are things that program directors need to be thinking about because it's contributing to the wellness um, or burnout of their, of their trainees. And so I think, I think th- things that maybe traditionally haven't been under the, maybe people don't think of that under the purview of a program director, but they do need to think about it. How are my fellows who have children getting their childcare and, and what can I do to help them? Um, things like that. I, I think, I took that as a little bit of a, of a call to action. Great. <laughs> good. That's, that's, yeah, that's it is good. I, yeah. <laughs> was that the, was that, I guess that could be the response you're hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fair enough. So, and then, you know, thinking about the, the, you know, the other side of the coin, you know, rather than responding to issues that come up, but how can we be proactive and promote wellness and um, try to prevent burnout um, amongst trainees, you know, there are some training programs that are starting to have opt-out therapy and mental health support for trainees rather than opt-in when issues arise. Um, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on, on pro, on that specifically, I guess, as a proactive intervention, specifically for burnout? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fantastic because we, you know, this paper that we we're talking about the, was the qualitative approach and we're, 
we're looking at individuals' comments, but on our quantitative arm, I mean, we found that individuals weren't just burnt out, but they also were depressed. There is a significant need, I think, for mental health support going through these years of training, these experiences, especially, you know, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of death in the ICU, and that's not normal to be dealing with that every day. That's not a normal human experience uh, to be seeing death as frequently as we do. And I was struck at how often this actually did come up in fellow comments that people wanted access to mental health or support that if these resources are easier to access and have fewer steps, I think they'd be more likely to be utilized rather than here's a phone number, go ahead and call this person if you need it. Having something built in that someone has to opt out of, I think would, it normalizes it, but it also just takes one more barrier out of their way. Yeah, I think that was very, that's very well said. And I, maybe that's a second call to action for, <laughs> for, for program directors out there to, you know, think about how can we proactively promote wellness and build, build in those, those support structures, like you said. Um, so I, I, and I think also, you know, just kind of diving back into the paper, um, it seemed like interpersonal interactions were a major factor that fellows cited and, you know, I guess specifically with it, with attendings. And I, I imagine that gets to, to autonomy, but also gets to, to culture um, and the, you know, the kind of larger learning environment. But so how, how can programs help faculty ensure that, that, you know, our interactions with fellows are positive, supporting, supportive, contributing to their, contributing to their growth and, and not a source of burnout. <laughs> Um, I think most attendings who are working in an academic training environment really want to support fellows in a positive way, and they want to contribute to their growth. Um, so I think um, sort of one thing that um, we can start with is sort of program leadership, asking fellows how attendings can best support them, and then providing that feedback to attendings. And maybe one suggestion is for attendings when they're starting a rotation with a new fellow to ask what the fellow hopes to gain from the rotation and how they can support them just by you know, speaking to them and talking to them, asking these questions up front. Um, I think that um, I think we could all benefit from additional training on leadership and feedback communication. And I think that's something that um, you really need as an attending as you're leading a team, working with fellows, working with trainees, but it's something that we don't always get in medical school and in our training um, that certainly exists that we could take advantage of. So sort of creating incentives for attendings to take advantage of trainings like that to then incorporate that into their um, work with fellows, I think would be another idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that a lot, you know, because I think there's this kind of expectation that attendings just know how to do it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that like a lot of things in medicine, uh, you, not everybody, not, you know, some people may feel more comfortable um, with those interactions and others, but there should be opportunities for everyone to, to gain skills and grow. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that certainly resonates, resonates with me. Um, and I guess, you know, as we kind of wrap up the podcast, uh, thinking in towards the future, you know, we've talked about some different potential structural solutions, you know, things that program directors can think about in terms of supporting learners, um, and then building in supportive structures, uh, that, you know, even outside the clinical environment, but then also thinking about how attendings can, um, we can best manage our interpersonal interactions with trainees. Um, you know, thinking about the, 
the field of medical education as a whole, you know, it, it seems like a lot of these factors are out of individual individuals' controls. That um, even if you know some and an individual educator wants to to do better to promote their to help promote their learners' wellness in their program um, or those that they work with, they may not be able to do that on their own. How can the field move forward and hopefully bring some of these pretty high burnout rates down? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it, it's it's not an individual's problem and it's not an individual's solution. Uh, that just primarily supporting trainees and acknowledging that this is a systems issue, I think is number one, first acknowledging where we are and then little little changes as, as we've mentioned, having that access to mental health as an opt-out, um, having, you know, a schedule available three months in advance, di different things that seem like, and I mean, I know making a schedule three months in advance is not a trivial issue. <laughs> That's actually probably a very big ask. Um, but doing things to give individuals control, control back, and then just working as a group, open communication on how, how we can all support each other and just being, being aware that this is a constant, constant stressor. I think that um, some of these issues, like you're saying, really do feel like they're larger medical system or sort of hospital level issues. So thinking about things like um, clinical workload, for example, or like the you know financial burdens and sort of compensation and all of that, right, is is beyond an individual educator's level. But I, I do think it's important for program leadership and individual educators to serve as advocates for trainees about these issues. Um, so sort of like advocating for policy change, advocating at the administrative level on their behalf um, when trainees may not be present at those meetings, like serving as the voice of trainees in that setting. Um, and then sort of just all the little things help that Jackie's talking about. I mean, that's what people were highlighting, things like clear communication, showing appreciation for fellows, like um, incorporating fellows when problems at the fellowship level come up, like incorporating fellow solutions and not just sort of arbitrarily coming up with a solution, but including fellows in that discussion. I think all of those little things contribute in the long run. Yeah. And I, that's great. You know, I, I think that, and I, I think, and I love that you know, your research touched on this, on the, 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 the individual, the interpersonal level, the systems level. And it almost reminds me of, you know, like like QI literature and, you know, thinking about that these are not issues that can be solved by individual people. We have to build systems that support learners and that create a culture um, where, you know, this, things are happening in the background that promote wellness that like fellows may not even know about um, and, but that they're benefiting from. And, and, you know, and I, and I think, and I think being an advocate, um, Sandy, like you said, is, uh, is a, is a powerful mindset. And, one that I think that you guys have, you, you both have done with, with this paper and contributing to this literature and, and, and putting it out there that burnt, you know, burnout rates are high in this specialty and here are the contributors and here are what people are experiencing. And, and I, and I, I love that your paper brought out those individual, you know, those individual experiences. I think that, that zoom in and then zoom out to the systems level that, you know, that we're all existing in was a, a very powerful statement for our, our field. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us today. Yeah, thank you. 
That concludes this episode of Scholarly. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast players so that you can stay up to date on whenever new episodes are available. As a reminder, ATS Scholar is an open access journal, and you can read the article discussed today at atsjournals.org, free of charge, no paywall. Take care.